Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies podcast series. I am your host, Amanda Jean Swain, at the University of California, Irvine. Today, we'll be talking with Asif Siddiqui about the Red Rocket's glare, spaceflight, and the Soviet imagination, 1857 to 1957, published by Cambridge University Press. So welcome to New Books in Russian Studies, Asif. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we're very glad to have you and to talk about your book today. Yeah. And to start us off, um, please tell us about how you became interested in studying Soviet history, and in particular, studying the history of a space flight. Well, there were a couple of sort of um, intellectual roots for this. One was I, I was always interested in, in space exploration as a kid. So um, more of a kind of fascination that you would have as, a, um, as an adolescent. So I was sort of interested in that. But also, uh, you know, I've been sort of, uh, I, I was really into Russian literature also. So as, as a teenager, I read all, all the greats. And so there, I sort of a general interest in it. By the time I got to graduate school, it just seemed like I wanted to do something with that. And um, somebody who really influenced me in my thinking was a professor in my graduate program, Wendy Goldman, who kind of oriented me a little bit towards um, Soviet history in a way that I hadn't really thought about before. The best way to characterize what I was thinking was I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do in graduate school. I knew I wanted, I wanted to be a historian of science and technology, uh, and I knew I, I had some sort of idea that I wanted to do things in space, <laughs> but I wasn't really sure what. And uh, But she sort of grounded my interest very much in Soviet history, and, and of course Soviet history is a fascinating and just endless topic uh, in, in terms of where you can sort of step into. So it was a little bit of both, really. I think I approached it... Uh, as a sort of childhood fascination with space. And there was a, a third thing that was happening also um, in the 90s when I was sort of graduating from college. Of course, the collapse of the Soviet Union had just occurred. So I was fascinated by what was coming out in terms of its, its reckoning with its own history. And as a kind of young college student, that seemed totally fascinating to me because when you study something like American history or European history, it just seemed like, you know, things are kind of set in its ways. And here was here was a history really being uh, rethought and reinvented daily in terms of what was coming out. You know, we thought this was happening, but actually this was happening. And so the space program was a perfect kind of way to enter that conversation because it was, it was so mysterious, so enigmatic, so weird that... I just thought uh, this was a perfect way to talk about some larger issues in Soviet history. So that's sort of how I got into it. Really. Mm-hmm. And I found this book particularly interesting because you do take those two approaches, this science and technology side, but also just the imagination, how people imagined that yeah, yeah. human beings could go to space. Right. Um, and, and just kind of that side of it, that combination of science fiction and and popular science. So yeah. we'll be talking a lot about that. Yeah. Um, I would say that I was um, surprised to see a book on spaceflight start in 1857. That seems a bit early chronologically yeah. to be talking about spaceflight. Yeah, yeah. So 
So tell us more about the social and cultural processes that were occurring in Imperial Russia in the mid-19th century that led to a fascination yeah. with space travel at that time. Yeah, I mean, this, was, this is a story also partly of my journey into this topic, because I'd imagined that I'd be talking about, it was very much a 20th century topic, a late 20th century topic, uh, the space program. But as I got uh, deeper into my, my project, I began to realize that you know things were going further and further back, and eventually it it just led me really to the 19th and eight, even the parts of it to the 18th century, really to the imperial era. And this was really the most fascinating part of the project for me was trying to uncover the intellectual and cultural roots of what I would call cosmic fascination. And um, certainly if you look back in Russian culture in the 19th century, uh, even a cursory sort of investigation of it will show you that there's all sorts of interesting and strange ideas percolating Russian culture, including, you know, occult, uh, fascination with occult, fascination with all sorts of mystic ideas, Russian folklore, all sorts of different ways you can understand it. And the fascination with co the cosmos, as I discovered, really had one foot, certainly in the rise of modern science, but one foot very much in the sort of what I would call a mystical tradition of Russian history. And so that's what I was trying to really recover because the science stuff was pretty straightforward, you know, science fiction, Jules Verne, that sort of tradition. Uh, it was interesting, of course, but um, it, as I got deeper and deeper, I, I began to realize that the story wasn't quite as straightforward. Yes, a lot of science fiction had seeped into Russia in the late 19th century, particularly translations of Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, uh, a lot of writers who were writing in French and English. Um, and this influenced a kind of local tradition of writing in, in the Russian language. But then I began to realize that there's a kind of interesting sensibility within Russia, an interest that wasn't what we would traditionally call scientific. It was more of a kind of mystical tradition. And the merger of the two was really fantastic and interesting to me. And this happens in the late 19th, early 20th century. So what I discovered in a nutshell was that by the time of, let's say, the Russian Revolution of 19, uh, October Revolution of 1917, the, when the Bolsheviks sort of came into power, you already had a very a strong foundation for interest in the cosmos that was rather widespread in, in Russian culture. Uh, and it, it wasn't, um, you know, any kind of state-driven uh, um, project. It was just a kind of a wellspring of uh, almost chaotic... Uh, unorganized thoughts about the cosmos. So that's what I was trying to access in the first few chapters of the book. And Konstantin Solkovsky, a school teacher who yeah. wrote in the late 19th century and early 20th century, um, is a key figure both at that time and then how he is um, included and excluded from the narrative of sure. Soviet spaceflight. Um, so tell us a little bit about him and in particular his mix of this science, popular science, science fiction, yeah. um, in, in his writings and um, and how he became such a central figure. He's really yeah. a fascinating yeah. character. Uh, yeah, I mean, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky is really at the heart of this story, and I, I could probably go on and on about him. In fact, one of the challenges of writing the book was to sort of not write only about him, but he's a central figure for many reasons. But he's, you know, to, today if you went to Russia and if you sort of looked around in their space program, he's considered the kind of sort of the founding thinker behind the space program. This this guy lived uh, most of his life in Kaluga, which is a you know sort of a large city, but uh, not Moscow or, or Leningrad or Saint Petersburg. And he he taught at a girls' school. He was 
mostly deaf and uh, completely self-educated. And in 1903, he published a bunch of, art, uh, well, one article in a, in a fairly well-known magazine that laid out the mathematics behind space travel. And so th this person who literally came out of nowhere had, had already figured this out, and he was the first to do so. Um, and so, uh, so by that sort of standing in, in terms of priority, he already has a place in the long history of space exploration. But his contributions, I think, much more than that simple, or that, that particular article, he wrote incredibly, uh, uh, profusely a lot. He was prolific. He published, self-published all of his stuff uh, from Kaluga. He would just publish it and pay for it. Uh, he wrote a lot about space travel, a lot about aviation and aeronautics. Uh, but he also wrote a lot about uh, the sort of man's, and in the word he would use was Jelovic, and sort of like a human destiny into outer space and why humans should go out into outer space. And he had sort of a particular vision of that. Uh, and also a Russian spin on that. So I, uh, there were many ways to approach his life. Um, after the revolution in 1917, he tried somewhat in vain to, to sort of um, become known. Um, and he eventually succeeded by the 1930s when the Stalinist sort of regime uh, sort of, um, you know, um, uh, accessed his writings and elevated him as the national hero. But for a while, he was really on his own, but he had an, a very large number of followers um, globally who wrote to him, he wrote to them. It's just like an international network of that, uh, writers and thinkers. And the other interesting thing about him was that he, he considered all his writings part of one big whole. So whether, whether he wrote science fiction or actual mathematics or uh, mystical stuff, it was all part of one epistemology, one idea about the world. And uh, we are now sort of accustomed to divide science in, and away from mysticism, away from science fiction. But he was writing in this one tradition that was, it was a big mix. So I wanted to recreate that worldview. I didn't want to imprint our categories on what he was doing. And as I, in the first few chapters of the book, you'll notice that I was trying to weave all of this together in the way he was thinking about it and how people perceived it. That that the categories that we really understand weren't even well-formed at the time. So to him, writing a fictional story about a person who goes to the moon was as, as valid as writing a mathematical, you know, an equation, a differential equation about velocity and etc. So um, in that way, I think he was working in many different idioms. And I, I love that whole idea very much. And I would say one more thing about him. He's, um, he was a very, he was, he was a very eccentric character. Um, he, for example, didn't, he had this belief that, um, you know, when we die, our, our particles go out into this outer space. And uh, the goal of humanity should be to reanimate, go out into space and reanimate those particles and recreate us again. So he had this sort of fundamental belief that death is not really a permanent state. So, um, and he, 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 he was married and had several children and, and unfortunately, uh, several of them died. And so he was very clear that he wouldn't grieve over them. Because after all, someday we would be reunited in outer space. So he had a sort of very strange and eccentric way. And he, you know, he didn't want to ever leave Kaluga. He was very afraid of leaving his town. Um, he didn't, um, so he had all sorts of fears. And personally, he was a very odd character. But I think uh, intellectually, he was very fascinating. And he traps into this long tradition, I think, also in Russian history, of, of many thinkers who were straddling the line between what we would today call science and non-science. But in those days, it was all sort of one part of one 
epistemology. So he's interesting for many reasons, I think. Mm -hmm. And we'll certainly come back to him later as we talk about how he became known as this founding father, Um, not just in terms of his actual work, but in the the narrative of of Soviet spaceflight. Um, But I also thought it was interesting, I found it interesting that um, in general, this whole idea of spaceflight was happening outside of the kind of traditional or um, accepted scientific um, institutions and that there were these scientific societies that formed around the idea of space flight. So tell us about these um, late 19th century, early 20th century um, societies. Yeah, one of the arguments that I wanted to really explore in this book was um, about what I would sort of loosely call populist science. There's a long tradition of writing about Russian and Soviet sciences, it's all about the Academy of Sciences and elite science. And I was interested in exploring the way science really operated at the bottom. Um, And of course, you start to look at this stuff in the 1920s and 30s, and so many uh, people, mostly young people, were inspired by Tsiolkovsky to really organize and do things. Of course, they didn't really have formal education or anything, but they were what we would today in amateurs and uh, one of I, I track a number of these groups but one of the more, more interesting one was a group called geared uh, which was formed around 1931 and again these these were men and women who were inspired by Tsiolkovsky had this so they had their motto which was onward to Mars but they didn't have very much resources they were supported by some local organizations the state completely ignored them mostly uh, but they built rockets in basements. Uh, they melted silverware to make their rockets. They uh, took, you know, fuel from different places. They, they, they. So they had day jobs. So this was all going on at night. Uh, but it's a very wonderful and inspiring story about the way in which, uh, what I again, what I would call populist science, something that was operating outside the Academy of Sciences, ignored by everybody, uh, and they had complete uh, belief in their convictions that they were doing something. Valuable and um, and they did eventually in 1933 they launched uh, quite a few rockets. Uh, you know these things just went up a few hundred feet and down. But this was quite an achievement for a bunch of amateurs who had no access to real state resources. So I tried to tell that story and how they related to Tsiolkovsky because they considered him a kind of uh, you know sort of patron of all this and they communicated with him. And Tsiolkovsky very happy to hear this. Um, uh, but there are many groups like this in the 1920s and 30s until, of course, it comes to a stop because at some point the Stalinist sort of regime stamps out all this activity uh, because everything has to be basically subordinated to state goals. Uh, And uh, that's essentially what happens. And before that happened, um, in the 1920s, it it was really amazing to see the level of activity of these amateur groups and and enthusiasts in terms of publishing and the lectures they presented and even these exhibitions on space travel that they designed. And so you attribute the space fad to a combination of technological utopianism and the mystical tradition of cosmism. So can you explain those two intellectual strands and talk about a little bit more about the activities of these space enthusiasts? Yeah. Yeah. Especially in the 1920s, you see, um, um, uh, uh, this interest in space, uh, interest in space, manifested in a number of media. For example, of course, uh, uh, science fiction being the most obvious one, but also film uh, exhibitions, uh, posters, uh, art. Um, um, everything was is sort of happening, and um, I I think some of the 
the sort of reasoning behind that must be attributed to a kind of um, uh, a fascination with science and technology that is endemic in the West in general. Uh, this is a time, early 20th century, when science and technology is very front and central in terms of uh, um, popular fascination with, you know, Thomas Edison, uh, Alexander Graham Bell, the rise of the modern automobile, electricity, telephones, uh, um, a whole bunch of other stuff is happening. So people are generally fascinated with this. And so there's a kind of wellspring of enthusiasm. But also, as I, as I point out, there's a kind of mystical tradition here that goes back to the 19th century, particularly the, the ideas of a thinker named Nikolai Fyodorov, who was a, a mystic and a philosopher, who had died actually by then, but his writings were still um, circulated and discussed. And again, this is a kind of millenarian kind of vision of cosmic interest in which the, the humans have a destiny to go out into space for all sorts of uh, reasons. And so th this kind of mix was a very, I think, uh, uh, provided a charge in the 1920s. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, one of the most important things that happened in the 20s was in 1927. There was a very large exhibition, the world's first exhibition of interplanetary mechanisms or something like that. And so I, 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 I found a lot of wonderful information and pictures and albums. And I, uh, I even uh, tracked down the, um, the visitor's book in which visitors were able to... Uh, note their impressions, and this is in March or April 1927, I believe. And so it's wonderful to see, like, regular people and what they were thinking, and, you know, uh, mostly factory workers, or and, and both men and women, very much uh, excited by the possibility of space travel, perhaps not really understanding the, the actual math and the engineering, but, you know, it was just a, a fascinating uh, record of popular interest in space, yeah. And again, it gets at that imagination yeah, that you yeah. talk a lot about that yeah. connection between engineering and yes, imagination, yes. that they had to not only have the technical skills, but they had to actually yeah. imagine that it was possible. And for, right, right. you know, kind of average people to go through this and to think, wow, yes. we could go to space yeah, is, is really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if there is one sustained thread throughout the entire book, I think it is that what I, how, the way I put it is imagination and engineering were co-produced, that you couldn't mm -hmm. have one without the other. Mm -hmm. Because all histories of the Soviet space program have essentially been told as tales of engineering, uh, kind of a techno-fetishistic, this is what happened, and this is the engine, and this is the engine. Or there's a whole bunch of books now about you know, sort of the cultural history. But I was trying to put it together. How do these things work together, trying to write a new kind of history? Uh, and so um, as the book moves along, you'll start to notice that a lot of the imagination is moving to the engineering part uh, because uh, that's kind of the way it worked out in there. So I was trying to do that very much. I, I really believed, and I still do that, this book, none of, none of the stuff that happened with Sputnik would have been possible without the imagination. And the imagination was happening in these exhibitions, in these films and whatnot, all the stuff that was going on in the 20s and 30s, yeah. And it wasn't until the 1930s that actually the um, kind of the scientific and military um, <laughs> organs of the state began to uh, kind of draw in um, this as a as uh, something to look into and something to research and to to begin to really make connections with these um, the popular science side. So you talk about um, that the. Um, mass organization, also Aviacum, yes. kind of adopted or they found a home within that right. organization. And 
and that um, we're able to really align their cause of space travel with the state's emphasis on industrialization and the yeah. military's interest in new technologies during the 1930s. Yeah. So um, that also was interesting because we do think of the 1930s as a time when popular action was really shut down. And yeah, yeah. yet you showed that in this arena, at least, there was still um, you know, kind of space for yes. uh, people to act within those structures and to put forward their um, interests even within the uh, push towards industrialization. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you pointed this out. That was another one of my goals was to, to, to really explore the spaces of public action, even under at the height of Stalinism, that, you know, even at this, you know, as things are really ramping up, there are people able to operate with some modicum of independence and initiative and agency, even as the Stalinist state is climbing down. And Oswald Yachim is, is a perfect example. It is a kind of a semi-state organization. It's voluntary, technically. But under their umbrella, these guys were able to do a lot. They were able to access state resources, but also essentially define what they were doing. And this happens through the 19... Uh, the first half of the 1930s. But what begins to happen is that the state becomes interested in the military applications of these things. And that's when, so it's not so much that they want to stop this activity, they just want to take control of it because it, 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 it serves their uses. And that is a, uh, itself a complicated and an, a bit of a sordid story but because it's not, doesn't end up really the way anybody really wished it would. But then nevertheless, the state takes begins to have, take an interest in the fact that these things could be useful as weapons. Mm -hmm. And that happens and, um, around uh, 1934, And obviously the story of spaceflight can't be told without uh, Sergei Korolev, yes. who was one of the key figures in um, the push to build a rocket in the 1930s. So tell yeah. us more about him and, and his role in, um, in this yeah. um, emphasis within the state to, yeah. to look at that as a technology. Well, yeah, I mean, he's... And again, you could Google or go into any book on the history of the Soviet space program, and Sergei Korolev is central to any kind of um, understanding of what's going on. You know, I, I was a bit wary of how to approach him because there's a tendency to hero worship him, and kind of there's a kind of hagiographical approach to his life. Uh, but I, what, I, what I found was actually quite interesting. He he it he wasn't really interested in space per se. What he was interested in was uh, at the time aeronautics. He was really fascinated with gliders and airplanes and things like that. And I think he, he sort of was casually interested in space to the extent that one of his older sort of mentors, Friedrich Sander was very much into space and uh, who, who really, really, um, you know, adored his older man. So I think that was his sort of entry point into space. But what happens is, of course, is he, he was an excellent manager. He was very um, uh, a sort of head of iron constitution, and he was able to marshal resources. And I think other people began to notice that this guy is, is a really key asset to have under your control, that he could do a lot. So I think he made a name for himself as a very good manager in this amateur group. And that's when this, the military began to notice him. Um, and uh, his aspirations at that point were still rather modest. He wanted to build rockets. He wasn't really thinking about space. Uh, but he gets, and then eventually he gets um, sort of uh, transferred to a state institute, the, what, what they used to call the Reactive uh, Research Institute. And that's where he worked in the, throughout the 1930s. This was a state institution funded by the military, basically, at least partly. And... Uh, 
that's where he built rockets. And he and a bunch of other guys, including his um, very close friends from the amateur days, were transferred here. And, and uh, they now had to wear uniforms. They had to have salaries and jobs. And so they, they, it was kind of formalized and institutionalized what they had been doing before. They had a lot of money. Uh, but as I point out in the book, there was a lot of conflict there, too, in terms of what they were trying to do. No, they really couldn't agree on what the actual vision of, of space or rockets was. Hmm. And that was um, an, another thing that really stood out to me in the book, were these um, these actually quite bitter yeah. <laughs> uh, arguments yeah. over what kind of fuel yes, to use. Yes. Should it be a solid propellant yes, or a liquid yes. propellant? Yeah. And, and all of these different... Um, um, uh, arguments which seem very technical, and yet you argue that they actually contributed to some of the collapse yes. of the rocket industry during the Great Purge. Yes. That it wasn't just about, you know, um, Stalin's devastation of right, Soviet right. science during the Purge, but yeah. the, that these acrimonious internal yes. debates um, helped that um, uh, fall apart. So tell us more about that. Yeah, and why were these so important and so bitter? <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a great question. I, you know, I um, I. Always, the, the, the narrative of, of the Great Purge and the Great Terror and the history of Soviet science um, has always been that you know it was a, a kind of an intervention from the top and it kind of destroyed or at least paralyzed Soviet science and technology, which is not untrue. That's essentially, it did paralyze and, and really cripple a lot. But uh, as I got into this institute, I began to realize that there were a bunch of guys fighting with each other, all the letters going back and forth, the records of this institute, and they were fighting over technical things. And eventually, if you track um, their arguments over, oh, I, I, need, I want to use solid propellant, I want to use a liquid propellant, I want to use storable, storable propellants, there's all these really arcane and esoteric arguments going on. And they become extremely vitriolic in the letters. Um, and their arguments and their disagreements begin to peak around 1937 at 38, which, uh, uh, as you know, is really the beginning of the purge. And so that's um, when... Um, what happens is they, they, these arguments become essentially unsolvable, and uh, one side essentially begins to denounce the other, and that's how the, sort of the, the, the purges really hit the research institute, and people get arrested and eventually shot. So something like an arcane technical disagreement essentially ends up with incredible social violence, uh, people throwing, throwing to the gulag, people um, getting shot, and so on and so forth. Um. The, throughout the war, there's, there was not very much interest um, by Stalin in terms of um, World War II, in terms of rocket technology, and even immediately after. And, and the narrative of Soviet spaceflight has been quite teleological, but you do argue that, um, that there wasn't a particular interest in building rockets um, in this, um, during the war and immediate post-war era. So what was the fate of this technology at that time? Well, as I, as I, I think there's a kind of narrative that um, is often propagated by historians that, oh, you know, everything was going great until the purges, and then that crippled uh, the whole program, and this is why the, the Soviets fell behind the Germans. And, and that is a very teleological argument, as you pointed out. And I turn, because it presupposes that everything was headed towards this kind of German level of technology. But, but as we find out, uh, the purges, while it was devastating in terms of the human cost, of course, these of many people ended up dead, many people in the gulag, etc. In terms of the sort of engineering and technological development, it really didn't have much of an effect on, on the Russian rocket, Soviet rocket program because these arguments 
pre preceding the purges had already determined the direction they were taking, and it was the direction different from the Germans already. So I wanted to uncover that little bit because I think it's important to understand and not get stuck in teleological arguments. Um, um, and uh, for any kind of familiarity with um, World War II um, and Soviet history, uh, anybody remotely familiar will, of course, remember the Katusha rockets, which, uh, which are still around and used by many different countries. But these were these little solid propellant rockets that barraged and sort of terrorized uh, the Germans. And this is the technology that they eventually embraced, not the Korolev line of technology, which was much more ambitious. Yeah, by the end of World War II, they had essentially embraced a different path. And so when they ended up in Germany in 1945, they began to realize that the Germans were on this incredibly ambitious level of technological development. And they were nowhere near it, really. And, so, and, and this wasn't just a Soviet problem. Uh, in the United States, too, when, when they discovered the remnants of the, the German B-2 program, it was quite uh, impressive to both the Americans and the French and the British and the Soviets. Who were, uh, because they had a, the Germans had achieved an enormous level, because they had unlimited state resources, they had uh, access to very bright engineers, so they, they were able to do a lot. And so when Karolev essentially gets out of the Gulag in 1944, he... Um, is rehabilitated. Well, he's not officially rehabilitated, but he ends up in Germany in 1945 uh, and is quite impressed with what the Germans have done. In the 1950s, though, the Soviet state and the military decided that rockets were important yeah. and there started to be a big push towards building rockets. Um, and um, this is again where sort of engineering and imagination um, can both align but also. Um, come into conflict because these engineers who were building these rockets um, were doing so in the context of social, institutional, and technological constraints. Um, and that was driving a lot of the choices, in particular, um, as you explain, um, towards an inter intercontinental ballistic missile right. among the many choices right, that right, they could have right. had um, as the rocket of choice. So can you talk yeah, about yeah, that yeah. context that was... Um, uh, in some ways, forcing them to make decisions that um, were not necessarily what their um, imagination could perceive, and how that directed the the technology. Right. Um, well, there's there's a couple of stories here. I think in the post-war era, one is that um, essentially the state and Stalin and his court begins to realize that rockets are important. You know, we can do things with them, and particularly in this, the Cold War, and both sides realize this very quickly on. And there's only a few people who are really smart enough to manage this stuff. And one of them happens to be Karolev, who was sort of rehabilitated, at least partially, and brought to work on this project. So one set of problems is, how do you, you know, this is the height of the Cold War. The Soviet Union explodes its nuclear bomb in 1949, which is a huge shock to, you know, Truman and, and the Americans in general. Um, but the question remains, it doesn't matter if you have a bomb, you have to somehow be able to deliver it, right? And so I go into all the debates about how to build something to deliver this bomb. And there's many ways you can imagine doing it. You can put it on an airplane. You can put it on a rocket. And, of course, what kind of a rocket? And all these questions are, are important. And I, and I think that's where I go in, back to the imagination part. Because it, the, the, the way they solved this problem was not just a purely technical solution. They really tried to imagine um, what kind what, – um, what the future could be with this with this thing that would deliver the bomb. And for people like Karolev and Glushko, 
they had a clear vision that whatever it was going to be was going to be our space program. So it was kind of this Trojan horse thing they were trying to build. And so the design of the rocket is fundamentally a great space rocket. And uh, so I, I, I go into the 19, in the 1950s particularly how that, that design is a, is a very intricate dance between technical constraints, you know, what kind of engine, what kind of, you know, all sorts of engineering problems, but also the imagination because they, they themselves have grown up in this particular milieu of in the 1920s and 30s. So for them, this, was, this rocket was an outcome of that imagination and engineering. So the book sort of comes together in this, in this uh, how the rocket eventually turns out. And in the 1950s, there's a, um, I go to in a chapter particularly, there's an explosion of renewed interest in space in popular magazines, um, in movies and things that are coming out, and how that's playing back to the engineering world and the secret world. And there's a wonderful trade-off between how Karlev and his buddies are essentially feeding this popular interest by seeding all sorts of articles in the popular media. And I tracked this, this link very, very, it, it, there, there was a link. It wasn't just a disembodied articles and magazines coming out. It turns out they were actually in charge of all this stuff, that all the different things that were coming out. So it's a very complicated story in the sense, I think, that, again, imagination and engineering were working sort of together to produce the rocket, the intercontinental ballistic missile. Of course, it was a very scary weapon because it was designed to drop hydrogen bombs on the enemy. Uh, but if you replace the bomb with a satellite, you could loft it into orbit. And Karlev and his friends were very keenly aware of this. Uh, it wasn't listed in any document that you could do this. And it was only in 1955 that Karlev sends a document to Khrushchev at the time. I mean, we'd like to do, we'd, we'd like to have basically one ICBM. Can you give us one? Uh, we'd like to switch out the bomb and put this thing in. And at the time, nobody understood what a satellite was. Uh, like the politicians, anyway. They didn't understand what this was. And they said, I think Khrushchev's uh, response was quite interesting. He said, well, if the main task doesn't suffer, then do it. With the main task being to build an intercontinental ballistic missile. And so that's how they sort of positioned their own ambitions within this weapons program. And I want to go back to what you just said about seeding the yeah. um, kind of popular science world, because that that was really interesting to me that here, you know, we always think of science, you know, particularly in the Soviet Union, but not just in the Soviet Union, that these kinds of um, uh, scientific innovations that are happening, particularly with a military um, uh purpose are really secret and that no one wants right. to, you know, there's no information that goes out. And yet these scientists who were working on building these ICBMs and thinking about missiles yeah. and, um, and space flight yeah. as, as an outcome of that are deliberately trying to build popular support yes. for the idea of space yes. flight. And, and, um, how did they, I mean, how did they perceive that that they would that would then benefit yeah. them? Um, why was the you know did they think there would be some kind of pressure then on the system right. or just in general would be um, make it easier for people to understand what they were doing when they finally accomplished it? But they seem to be very intentionally trying to um, build um, popular yes. support for this idea. Yeah, that, that's a really good question. I think I think all your uh, uh, speculations are true. They were trying to build a kind of popular uh, support for, and this was another, I think, one one of the sort of um, conclusions that I drew from this project, that popular support, even in, in sort of draconian, so-called, quote-unquote, totalitarian, state, was necessary for Sputnik. 
they, they wanted to generate, they wanted to have a wellspring of support. But it wasn't just the Soviet population they were concerned about. And as I show in the book, they seeded these articles in the Soviet media. Oh, we're going to launch a satellite in a few years. And they would very carefully articulate these articles and they were published. These articles were then picked up by the CIA or the American media and then were republished. And, in, you know, I want articles in the Washington Post. Russians announced they're going to launch a satellite in two years. And of course, what happened was exactly what I think maybe Karolev wanted, which is that once the Washington Post and the New York Times start talking about it, American scientists get all nervous. What are these guys doing? So they take their project to the president. And in fact, President Eisenhower then announced in July 1955, we're going to launch a satellite. This was in direct response to an actual article about a Soviet thing that Korolev had planted. And then once Eisenhower announced, Korolev took this piece of information, went to Khrushchev and said, look, these guys are going to do this. So. Um, I don't know if the, this dance was thought out as intricately as uh, uh, in a, uh, ahead, but I think they were working with the system, right? They were just doing whatever was possible. So it's a very interesting dance across the Iron Curtain that they're playing, kind of seeding these articles, provoking the Americans to announce something, then taking that information to Khrushchev and so on and so forth. It's, uh, and that's exactly what, what happened in the sense that the approval for Sputnik, the file, the actual DELA that was taken to Khrushchev, at cuttings from the New York Times and the Washington Post, saying these are they're they're going to do this, and these articles from the Washington Post and the New York Times were quoting Russian newspapers. So yeah, kind of mm. absurd. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And they did indeed um, get permission yes. to build and to launch a, a satellite. And um, what I also found surprising was that you say that the scientists who were actually engaged in this endeavor and who launched the satellite didn't seem to realize the um, importance of this as a historical sure. moment. And um, so what, why, after working so hard to get to this moment, to put something into space, yeah. um, why did they seem to not recognize their own achievement? Yeah. Um, I think part of it was that most engineers just took it as the next job, you know, especially the rank and file people working in the factories. They just got an assignment. Oh, now we're going to switch out the bomb for the satellite. They didn't really maybe think about it that much in terms of its um, global repercussion. I don't think anybody really thought. Um, I think even Karolev and Glushko and these guys were thinking, yeah, this will be kind of nice and it'll be on the news, but that's about it. I don't think anybody thought that this would cause a sensation globally. Uh, I think there was some mark of pride, obviously, with any any work that they were doing because it was secret. It was a, a national security project. Uh, but yeah, the the people, the memoirs left behind, and the few people who were alive that I've talked to, they were just looking at this like the next job they were doing. It was only sort of post facto that they look back and go, "Oh my God, look, you know, we were part of this amazing thing." Um, and I, I I tell this story where um, they're um, flying back from the launch site to Moscow, and uh, Karla is very tired, he's launched Sputnik, and he, they're listening to the radio, and the pilot comes back and says, you wouldn't believe all the stuff that's going on globally, reporting this event. And uh, Karla, I think, there's a nice sort of chuckle, I think, I don't think he, I think he was genuinely shocked by, by what happened, because I don't think he expected the level of um, fascination with this to be at that level. At the same time as the launch of Sputnik, um, there's also then a 
construction of a narrative um, of Soviet space flight yes. in which there's a very deliberate choice by Kotolov and yes. these other engineers working with him to um, place Sokolovsky as the um, father of space flight right, and right. to kind of create this um, very um, direct narrative from his work yeah. to their achievements. So uh, tell us more about that and this, yeah. because it has been the dominant narrative yeah. of Soviet space science. Yeah, I think there is, um, once Sputnik happens, there's a kind of reshaping of the history of Sputnik, the prehistory. And uh, what happens, is, well, one way in which it's reshaped is it's reshaped as an entirely state-driven narrative. Like, basically, until 1917, everybody ignored everything about space, about Tsiolkovsky and everything. And then Bolsheviks come to power in 1917, and literally, you know, Lenin takes charge. And the next day, you know, I mean, literally, but not, I mean, maybe not literally, but uh, basically he, he takes Tsiolkovsky out of obscurity and positions him as a great Russian hero, and he's given a pension. And, and then it, it is through Tsiolkovsky's effort that people like Karlev come up and the state provides all the resources. So it becomes a state-driven narrative that it has one direction, and that direction comes to Sputnik. So that's one way that the story is reshaped. And certainly the other way that it's reshaped is it becomes about a few key individuals, Tsiolkovsky being one of them, Karlev being another, and everybody else is sort of marginalized and, and taken out of the narrative. So both narratives, the state-driven one and the Tsiolkovsky-identified one, uh, marginalize and efface and erase a whole bunch of other people and a whole bunch of other phenomena that was crucial to the birth of Sputnik that I, I hope I captured in my book, which is that you know, there were regular people and factory workers and artists and these kinds of people. So I think because the, the, the new narrative, the state-driven one and the Tsiolkovsky Korolev one suited the, the, you know, the state and the, the, the party in the 1960s because it, it legitimized Khrushchev's you know, kind of access and appeal to that, that this is, a, this is a very deliberate way that we've come here and we are inheritors of this long tradition and I'm continuing it, in the words of Khrushchev, I'm continuing the state drive towards outer space. So yeah, there's a kind of deliberate way this narrative is shaped and it endures for decades. Uh, I think it's, it's uh, and in many ways it still endures. I think if you pick up a book in, in, this, in Russia now on the history of their space program, it is that narrative basically. Um, um, uh, barring a few exceptions, uh, it hasn't really broken down uh, because uh, Russian, the people who write the history of the Russian space program in Russia tend to be uh, people who are very closely identified with the state um, and Russian academics who write and written wonderful things are, tend to get marginalized their work. So uh, for better or for worse, that's the way it's remembered now. But you, on the other hand, in your book by saying that Sputnik was not a triumph of Soviet science, yes. what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think I, I was being, trying, to be a little bit, uh, trying to be a little bit provocative uh, in the sense that, yes, Sputnik wasn't a, a triumph of Soviet science. First, because it wasn't really a Soviet. I mean, I think in the sense of um, it had uh, chronologically so much of it happened in the 19th century and before 1917. But also it wasn't Soviet in the way even post-1917 because it was, it was happening in spaces that were often counter to official Soviet discourse um, in through the 1930s uh, and sometimes even past that. So in that sense, I meant it, it wasn't Soviet. And the other way I meant it wasn't a triumph of Soviet science, because I don't know if it was just science. 
it was many things. And uh, I wanted to clarify that in the book that it was imagination. It was uh, um, all sorts of amateur thinking. It was fiction. It was art. It was many things. And so uh, I thought that saying that Sputnik is a triumph of Soviet science limits the story incredibly. It puts, it puts blinders on the story. In fact, it was a triumph of many things. And that's really what I wanted to say in the book. Well, thank you very much for talking about the book. I really enjoyed reading it. I found it um, very interesting and the individual characters um, interesting, but also, as you said, just this map, this participation at a popular level. Yeah. And, um, and so I will say for our listeners that the book was originally published in 2010, but it came out just um, a couple of years ago in paperback. So yeah. it is available in paperback. And again, thank you for talking with us today. And I'd like to close by asking what you're working on now. Well, yes, I'm working on a, on a couple of different projects. One is actually a Soviet history project. I'm writing a book on the history of um, scientists who were caught up in the gulag. So it's kind of an offshoot of this book. I'm writing about the ways in which um, there were specific camps in the gulag called the Sharashka camps where scientists and engineers worked. Uh, but I'm also looking at the way in which Soviet science contributed to the construction, creation, and maintenance of the gulag. So it's a quite a, I think, an interesting project about the way in which the history of Soviet science was inextricably linked to the history of the gulag. The other uh, project that I'm sort of beginning, uh, which has to do with Soviet history, is a book on the history of secrecy in Soviet life. And that's just at a very beginning stage. So I'm working on those two couple of projects. Well, great. And I hope that we'll have the opportunity in the future to talk to you about another new book. But in the meantime, again, thank you for today. And thank you again to our listeners for joining us for this podcast and the new books in Russian studies. Thank you very much. Thank you.